Hey, not too long ago, I had the opportunity in a conversation with a high school student to ask this question. I asked him what his friends, what would be his friend's definition of success? What would be his friend's definition of success? And before we hear what he had to say, let me ask you a question. And it's the same question. What do you think he would say that his friends, how they would define success? Success to a young person today is what? Money. Car. Clothing. Car. Money. What? 2.4 kids. <laughs> All right. Hey, there's no wrong answers here. <laughs> that would be as close as one as you can get. <laughs> What else? A cur- okay, a cute girlfriend or, you know, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. Popularity, being liked by people. Being what? Staying alive till 21. I guess it depends on where that question would have been asked. Um, good health. Don't even think about it. They don't even think about it. What? Things? Stuff? Oh, fame, fame. Uh, fame, popularity, things, money. You know what? Here, here's what he said in, in an interesting definition, and I think it kind of hits it right on the head. The definition was this. To do whatever you want, whenever you want. That is success. Isn't that interesting? And I think it pretty much sums it all up, doesn't it? It sums up everything that you said. The fame, the popularity, uh, the money, the things, the vehicle, uh, all of that stuff. But to do whatever you want, whenever you want then that would be a successful person. Now, isn't that interesting? Now I want you to contrast that and compare it to an idea that's found consistently throughout the Bible. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. This particular passage made a huge impact on me because I'm one of those guys who likes things very clear, very plain, and easy to understand. What is success? And so I recall many years ago, looking through the Bible to try to find out what God's definition of success really is. Is it really to do whatever you want, whenever you want? Or does God have a different idea as to what it means to be successful, at least in his eyes? And this is what he has to say. Joshua 1, look at verses 6 through 9, and the counsel that God gives to Joshua following the death of Moses, as Joshua was about to undertake the leadership role in leading the people of Israel into the land that God had promised them, God says this to Joshua regarding success. Because anyone who's going to be in a leadership position wants to know, will I be successful in this position? Now Moses is gone and we followed him for 40 years and all these people got used to his leadership style. They got used to how he spoke. They got used to how he led. They got used to a certain type of personality and how he dealt with things and a certain temperament. And now here I am. I'm going to step into his position and I want to know, God, am I going to be successful in this new undertaking that you're now giving to me? And this is what he had to say. He says, be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, and be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you to do. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, 
but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. It says, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and be courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In the final analysis, life boils down to two viewpoints, two perspectives. One is the perspective that was illustrated by the definition of the young person that said success is to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. That viewpoint is very temporary. That viewpoint is very short-term. That viewpoint is very short-sighted. It has to do with the here and the now. Today, I want to do what I want, when I want to do it, and if I can do that and get away with it, then I'm successful today. The other is what's called an eternal perspective, or a long-term perspective. That is to look at life as God sees life and understand that his definition of success isn't the same definition of our culture or our peer group or the people around us would have us to believe that it is. God's definition of success is simply this. If you are careful to study and to know what I say is right or wrong, and then you obey that and do that, then you will be successful in the eyes of God. Every viewpoint boils down to those two. Is what I'm about to do pleasing in the sight of God? Is it right or wrong before God? Or does it meet another immediate need that I have? And it doesn't really matter whether it's right or wrong. And it doesn't matter what the long-term consequences are. And it doesn't matter what price I'm going to pay later on. But the question I have is, if I do this now, will I be happy with what I'm going to do? Two perspectives, drastically different. And we need to recognize and understand in the area of finances, those same two viewpoints are going to come to play as we go throughout the series. And we begin to learn what God has to say about the area of finances. It's important to recognize what he's saying here is that if you want to be successful, then you need to be careful to meditate on the word of God day and night or what God has to say in every area of life. Specifically, we'll be referring to finances. But what does God have to say about this specific area of life? Once I know what he has to say, then the problem's going to be whether or not I want to do it or not. Knowing the truth and knowing what's right or wrong doesn't mean we're automatically going to do what's right or wrong. We still have free will and we still have a decision to make and we still have a choice to make. And that's where the difficult thing is going to be. The difficult thing, as I've seen in my life, is it's not so much knowing and understanding what is right or wrong. The difficult thing is believing what God has to say is right or wrong and then having it change what my actions would be to the good or to the bad, one way or the other. See, the one viewpoint is basically this. You know what? I want what I want when I want it. And the other viewpoint is this. I want what God says is right or wrong in my life. I want what is right, and I want to stay away from that which is wrong. And if I really believe that, belief should shape my attitude, and belief should also shape my actions. How many of you believe that if you believe something, it should be carried out in the way that you live? I would hope so. Think about this. If you believed that you were sick and dying and that you would have to go to a doctor to get taken care of and to be cured of that illness, if you really believed you were sick, you should act upon that, I would think, and go and get help. If you really believed that a hurricane was coming and it was going to destroy your community, 
And you really believe that because the information that you are getting is accurate and it's been proven to be accurate in the past. And the weather prediction systems that we have today, they can track hurricanes and say, we're telling you folks, if you live in this particular town, the, the hurricane's going to pass over your town, it's going to destroy everything that's there. And if you really believe the information that you're beginning is truthful and that you can count on it to be true, then I would think that it would affect the way that you would act upon that. And you're going to do something about it. You're going to leave that area. Like that old foolish man who sat at the base of Mount St. Helens. And he was given information. They made a movie out of him. He didn't get to stay around and enjoy it. But they made a movie out of this fool who said, I've lived here all of my life, and I don't care what they say if this volcano goes or not. I'm not going anywhere. You are toast. You are toast. I mean, you are going to... I mean, don't you understand? And the guy, you know, I, I don't believe the information. Or I believe the information, but I don't care upon it. And that's even dumber than if you don't get the information and you don't know what to do. So as we go through this, we need to recognize and understand, if you really believe what is being said to you is true, then I would hope that you're not so foolish that you don't do something about it. And as we go through this and we begin to realize, you know what, God has three goals for us. Three goals for his kids. Now to become a, a, a child of God. The Bible says all that we have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. And we become a child of God to those who believe in his name. If anyone received him, to what? To them he gave power to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Now it's important to understand and recognize when we're talking about name in the Bible, name always had to do with authority. If you know anything about the Bible, you remember when Moses was about to leave Egypt, he said to God, when God said, go and set my people free... He said, I'm going to speak to Pharaoh, Moses said, and I need to know in what name shall I tell him that I've come to let these people go. Do you remember that? Well, what he was saying was, by whose authority am I going to walk up to Pharaoh and say, oh, excuse me, Pharaoh, I've come so that you'll let all these free laborers here go. These three million people that are doing all your work, building all these great pyramids that you have and all the stuff that we see today, that was all free labor and, and slave labor, and I've, I've come here to, to take them away. Oh, Really? You know, he said, who shall I say sent me to do this? And you say, tell him, I am Yahweh, the living God. You tell him, God sent you. That's name or authority. The same is true in any other case. You know, we've got people who work for us. If they go to a supply house or whatever to buy material, and say, and, and who sent you or what company sent you or what authority do you have to come here and purchase things and what account are we going to put it on? It has to do with authority. And so, basically saying that for anybody who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God gives us the authority now to be called a child of God because we believed in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven, no other authority under heaven by which man will be saved but that of Jesus. That's it. So it has to do with authority. So once you become a child of God, now God has authority over you in your life, and he says, I've got three goals for you. Goal number one is that you would become salt and light. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. That you would become salt and light. And we've talked in great detail about it. I'll touch base with a little bit on it. But the second thing is, he says, that you are to be a servant. And then the third thing that has to deal with the area that we'll be talking about is he says you are also to be a steward. He says you're to be salt and light. Matthew 5 tells us that we're to be salt and light and that a city set upon a hill can't be hidden. God doesn't call his people to be better than other people, but he does call us to be different than other people. 
that there should be some difference between us and people around us who don't know by which authority we live on this earth. We should be different. It's not so, so much better, but different. Now, the thing that separates you from other people around you as a Christian isn't how much stuff you have. See, God doesn't say, if you put your faith and trust in me and become one of my children, that I am going to just reap all these financial, this windfall upon you, and I'm going to give you every physical thing that you could ever imagine and every desire that you have. I'm just going to load it up on you so that when the world sees you, they're going to see you driving around in a big old nice car, and they're going to see fancy jewelry on your wrist, they're going to see nice clothes on your back, and they're going to see that you've got a lot of stuff because that's what's going to separate you from everyone else or make you different. He doesn't say that. But what he does say is, is that we're going to be different in the area of finances and it has to do with our attitude. We're going to be different in that our attitude as Christians is going to be about finances. Hey, you know what? We got an attitude that the Lord gives and the, and the Lord takes. We got an attitude that we can open our hands and hold them out and say, God, if you want to bless me, great. And if you want to take from me what you've given me, great. I don't have a problem with that because, you know what? Because everything comes from you anyway. We're going to be different from other people in that, you know what, when we lose something, when we lose our finances in a bad investment, we lose our business because of other things that happen in our life, we lose whatever because of the economy, we lose appreciation or, or, or equity in our home because, you know, the market changes. We, we lose stuff. You know what's wonderful about a being Christian that's different from the rest of the world? It doesn't destroy our life. Because our trust isn't based on material things. That stuff comes and goes. We know that and we understand that. And we know that God's in control of everything. What makes you and me different as far as being salt and light in the world around us when it comes to finances is that, you know, we can have joy and peace and contentment in our life because we know God's in control. That's what makes us different. It's not devastating. It's not going to destroy our marriage. It's not going to destroy our family. It's not going to destroy our life. We're not going to go as one man that I know who was in business that I, I knew very well went and hung himself in the garage of his house because of a downturn in his business. So what if you lose everything financially? That's not what we're here. That's not what we hold on to anyway. See, the difference between being a Christian and non-Christian is that, you know what? A Christian doesn't put his faith and trust in things, but puts his faith and trust in God. But the non-Christian doesn't know that. And there is no God to trust. And there is no God that you can hold on to. There is no God that you can turn to. Their God is money. And things and possessions. And when those possessions are all gone, their God is gone. That's why Jesus said, you know what? You can only love either God or you love money. You leave either love one or the other. And either God's your God or money's your God. Possessions are your God. And you know what? Christians are not possessed by their possessions. We shouldn't be. But as we see as we go through here, maybe some of us aren't very different than the people around us. But one of the goals that God has for you and me is that we're to be salt and we're to be light. We're to be different from people around us in the area of finances. And I'll guarantee you as you go through these and you see the principles of God, God's principles are different than any other principle that you ever learn in any business school, in any book that you pick up and read, in any college that you went to. I'll guarantee you that God's ways make no sense compared to what you've been taught throughout all of your education process. They're going to be different, but they're going to be true, and they're going to be right. The second thing is this. He says we're to be servants. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Jesus came to serve. He's saying that, you know what? God's goal for you and me, if we're children of God, if we put our faith and trust in God, one of his goals for us that we should be obedient to and live out in our life is that we're to be servants of other people. Do nothing from selfishness. 
or vain conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you consider one another as more important than himself. You know, we have an opportunity through finances to be different in the way we handle our finances to the point where we're out there to try to meet the needs of other people as we pray about it and as we saw in Philippians, as we have real knowledge and real discernment about who God wants us to help and who God doesn't want us to help. But the area that we can help them in is very specifically in the area of finances. If you're going to be different, I'll tell you what, all you've got to be different is in the area of trying to meet the needs of other people, and I'll guarantee you that's going to be drastically different than the person that's, that, that you know in your life that doesn't know God and lives for money. Because their philosophy of life is, hey, you know what, why would I give it to somebody else when i got my own needs, man? i got my own stuff I want to buy, i got my own things I want to do, why would I want to reach out and help somebody else because I worked hard for it, it's mine, and I can do whatever it is I want with it, and I want to do what, what I want for me. And that makes sense to them. And the third area that we're going to talk about is in this whole area of stewardship. Now, if we're to be salt and light, which we are, and if we're to be servants, which certainly we are, we're also to be stewards. But the question is, and the problem is, and the principle that some of us haven't really grasped yet and understand, is that we need to ask this question. What is a steward? What is a steward? Webster says this. Very simple, easy definition. Webster says that a steward is one who manages another's property. One who manages another's property. Now, we don't use that term very often as far as steward is concerned. I think the only thing, the only thing that I can think of that even vaguely resembles that is if you're in a union environment and you've got a shop steward. And, and, and that would be the only term that I can think of even in our culture that would resemble this, whole, this, this name that is being used. But let me ask you a question. How many of you are... Um, in the real estate business, okay, and and uh, you'd be uh, would you be a real estate agent? Yes, anybody an agent? Agent broker? What are you? Broker? Okay. Uh, do you have agents that work for you? You don't? Okay. Um, do you know what an agent does? Okay. What do they do? Uh, works for the broker. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, primarily, but what I'm also hoping to get at is that the agent also works for someone else. Okay, for the seller, for the buyer, okay? If you're a real estate agent, you not only work for the broker, which is keeping your priorities in line, but you also don't lose the fact, in sight of the fact that you're working for, um, let's say, your customer, whether they're a seller or a buyer. Let's assume for a moment that, that, um, that your customer, in this particular case, as a real estate agent, is a seller of a home, okay? Now, as a real estate agent, what authority does that real estate agent have in the selling of this particular person's home? Okay, it represents the seller can represent the seller, but how does this agent know what to do? Well, good question, huh? That's the scary thing about the whole real estate industry, isn't it? <laughs> Glad you asked. Uh, but let's just assuming they know something. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, you're an escrow officer. You do what the escrow officer tells you. That's right. All right, don't, don't get everybody confused now with this thing here. Larry. They have some limitations. They've got some parameters. If you've ever sold your home and you've sit down with a real estate agent, you say, the first thing they ask is, well, you know, what are you, what are you looking to get out of your house? What do you want to sell your house for? And that real estate agent within parameters, yeah. Yeah, you have a listing agreement that tells you exactly what you're going to do, exactly what those parameters are, exactly what the basis of your relationship for that particular seller is, you know, what you can do, what you cannot do, what your authority is. Now, can you imagine for a moment that you had a real estate agent that was going to sell your house and you wanted 
$300,000 for your house. But they knew somebody they liked. And they just thought, this is the nicest people, and you know we really think they deserve to get into a house. So you sell them the house as a real estate agent for $200,000. Now you already know that it's three hundred. dollars that's the, the listing agreement, that's the parameters that you have, but you enter into this negotiation and say, you know what, I'm just gonna give you this house for two hundred. I like you, you're a nice young couple, I wanna help you get started. Well, that's really nice of you as a real estate agent to help them get started with whose money? With the seller's money. Now, is there a problem with that? What would happen to a real estate agent who conducted business like that? What's that? They'd either go to jail or they certainly lose their license to be able to practice their particular profession, right? I would hope. All right, so we get in the concept here? There's, there's certain parameters that an agent has that are different than what the owner has. The same is true in banking. The same is true as, you know, in dealing with sports, you've got sports agents. You know, and the agent can't enter into an agreement with the team until the man that he represents or the athlete that he represents says, okay, I'll accept that offer, have him fax us the contract and we'll sign the deal. I've never met a, uh, an, uh, an agent for an athlete who said, you know what, I know that you wanted a three-year contract and I know you wanted a million two a year, but you know what, I don't really think you're worth that much and when I got to talk to the owner, I like him and we got along really good and he took me out to lunch and so we cut you a three-year contract for 150000 a year. And you know what, and I signed it and it's a done deal. Would anybody be upset in this picture? <clears throat> I think so. What am I trying to get across here? What's the point? The point is this. An owner has rights. An agent or a steward who manages another's property has responsibilities. You follow that? An owner has rights. An agent has responsibilities. Now the responsibilities that that agent has to whatever degree or limitation, to whatever, whether extent or limitation that agent has, is going to be based upon what the owner chooses to give to that person, whether it's selling a house, whether it's negotiating a contract, whatever it is. If you are a manager of another's possessions, you have nothing but responsibilities and you have no rights. Does that make sense? Do you believe that? If you believe that, it affects your actions. If you have an attorney who is representing you, he is your agent. He is to represent you and give you information, and he may give you counsel, he may decide what you should or shouldn't do, but in the final analysis, in the bottom line, is as the owner or the decision maker, you have the privilege of making the final decision. Same with the real estate agent. You can take her counsel or his counsel and you can say, yeah, I think we should take that offer or not. And based on all this information, you but you have the final decision to make. It's your right to make that decision. It's important as we, as we get into this that we understand it because a lot of us are really confused in the area of finances because I know a whole lot of people who think that they've got rights. You know what? I don't hear very many people running around saying, but I've got my responsibilities, man. But you hear a whole bunch of people saying they got rights. Now the question is, do you really have any rights? Do I have any rights? 
Or if I am called by God to be a steward, do I just have responsibilities? And there's a huge difference because it's going to affect my actions. Turn with me to a parable in Matthew chapter 25 that I believe will help us clearly understand the difference between rights and responsibilities. And this will change your life in the area of finances. I'll guarantee it. Now, of course, that's only if you decide to apply it. And if you don't decide to apply it, here's what's going to happen. You're going to now know what is right or wrong, and you're going to know the truth. Now, the truth either sets you free because you obey it, or the truth drives you crazy because you're fighting it. And that's just the way it is, isn't it? It's like, oh, great, now I know. Well, let me just help you understand something. Whether you are knowledgeable or not of biblical truth, God still holds you accountable to obey it because he's the one that first says you need to meditate on it day and night. You need to read it. You need to study it. You need to know it. It'd be like saying, well, officer, I don't really know what the laws of the land are because I don't want to know because that way I can do whatever I want to do and then I can plead ignorance. No, ignorance of the law is no excuse. And the same is true with God. I don't want to know anything about finances, God, because I don't want to be held accountable to it and I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. God says, uh-uh, doesn't work that way. You need to know because I'm holding you accountable to it anyway. So you might as well know. So at this point, let's all agree that we might as well know. At the end of all this, then you can decide whether you want to apply it or not. And I'll just tell you this. If you do, you'll be glad. If you don't, you'll be going nuts. Because the Spirit of God will be going... That's what he does in my life. Hey, Chuck. It's like, oh man, you ever have those conversations with yourself? But you're not really having with yourself. You're really having with God. They're not those verbal, audible ones that only certain really, really spiritual people have. No, just kidding. <laughs> They're those ongoing ones you have with God all the time. Oh God, why, why do I have to do that? Well, because I say to. But why do you say to? Because that's who I am. Oh, but I know that's who you are. Well, then, is there any room to negotiate? Well, if you know that's who I am, you know there's no room. Oh man, I hate this. So we have very short conversations, and the longer I live and the older that I'm getting, we hardly even talk like that to each other at all anymore. You said it? All right, here we go. Okay, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. It's a parable that helps to illustrate the spiritual truth that God's trying to get across to us. Number one, in verse 14, he says this, For the kingdom of God is like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Now immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you've entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you've entrusted me two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering, your, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said, You wicked and you lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. 
For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he who shall have abundance, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have is going to be taken away from him. And cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, into a place where there shall be weeping and there shall be gnashing of teeth. In this particular parable, Jesus tells it on top of a parable that's, that was in the first part of this chapter, which is verses 1 through 14 or 1 through 13. And it, <clears throat> and it has to do with the whole aspect of waiting for Jesus to return to this earth. We're to be waiting and watching for Jesus to be returning to this earth, but the problem is some of us don't know what to do in the meantime while we're waiting for this to take place. Some of us don't even realize that it's going to take place, and our belief should affect our actions as well, but others are wondering, okay, God, you know, when's the Lord coming back? I've about had it. <clears throat> business is, excuse me, business isn't going good. You know, we're not doing that well financially, and everything's based on finances. You know, it's like, hey, when things are going great financially, it's like, you know, even so, Lord, come slowly because we're really enjoying all this stuff. And, and, and when things aren't going good financially, it's like, you know, I can't wait till Jesus comes back again. I'm telling you what, I'm just about ready for this. You know, I can't handle this no more. And uh, so what, what he wants us to do is understand, well, what are you supposed to be doing in the meantime? As we're watching and waiting for him to return, he gives us the answer in, the, in this particular parable. He says, hey, you know what? While you're watching and waiting for me to come back, you should also be working in the midst of that. In the light of Jesus' return, we should be laboring in light of it. There are things that we're supposed to be doing while we wait for his return or until he takes us to him. And so as we go through this, there's four financial principles that I want to share with you that has to do with this whole aspect of what are we supposed to be doing while we're waiting. In this particular parable, there's four financial principles. And I'll guarantee you that these principles will change your life. Guaranteed. Because they're not mine, because they're God's. That's why I know they'll work. If there was my ideas, you know what? Anything could happen. But fortunately, they're not. Number one, parable. Uh, this parable teaches principle number one. Now, remember this. Principle number one, and it's illustrated once again, and that is that God owns it all. God owns it all. It says again, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and what? Entrusted his property to them. The majority of our problems in the area of finances has to do with the fact that we do not understand this principle. Let me be as clear as I can. You own nothing. I own nothing. Everything that I have has been entrusted to me by God who is the owner. I am an agent who represents an owner who has entrusted his possessions to me. I don't own anything. And you don't either. And you need to understand that because it changes our whole attitude toward finances. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Genesis 2.7 says, and don't forget that it was the Lord God who took dirt from the land. And he picked it up and he breathed life into it so that you and I would become living creatures. Sometimes we're as foolish as often is illustrated in the Bible where the clay is trying to tell the potter that he didn't make the, the, the pot right. And that's why God uses that as a word picture to help us to understand. You see, you and I own nothing. 
when the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 through 16, it says that all the people came and they gave for this building project generously. They kept bringing stuff and they kept giving everything that they could give. And finally they had to say, stop bringing so much stuff, we got enough stuff to build the temple. And all the people were going around saying, look how generous we are. And as you read through and realize what God has to say is simply this, finally, as, 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 as one of the leaders stood up and said, you know what? We can't boast about what we've given to God because He gave it to us and all we did was give it back to Him. You see how silly we are sometimes in the area of finances? God owns it all. And He has entrusted it to you and to me and we need to consult Him when we're going to make some decisions. Let me give you an illustration. How many of you have a child or children who are driving one of your cars? You got that? Anybody? Anybody have a child, children driving one of your cars? All right. Well, we can go this direction. Um, so this child is driving one of these cars. This child starts to like this car. This child starts to talk in terms of possession of this car. This child starts to say things like, Would you like me to move my car, Dad? Would you like me to, you know, move my car down to the street? Would you like me to, what would you like me to do with my car? And see, now I look around and I'm looking for this man's car because I know he doesn't have a car. I know the car that he's using, I'm allowing him to use, and we're allowing him to use. But this man has no car of his own. But he's starting to get used to this car. Now, what happens one day when you say, hey, you know what, I would like my car back because I'm thinking of selling my car. You can't sell my car! But I can because it's not your car. Do you understand? Oh, how would you like to have an employee who works for your company who decides to leave your business but they are used to driving the company vehicle? You see what I'm saying? Okay, you got, you know, you got, uh, you know, you got a policeman who decides I'm not going to be a policeman anymore, but I've been driving this car for a couple of years. <laughs> I say, well, okay, you're going to be leaving. Hey, we're, you know, it's been good to have you here, but you know what? You go ahead and park the car. Hey, I got a gun, <laughs> but it's not your gun either. Would you please put the gun away and give it to us and park the car? It's not your car, but but I really like the car. You can't have it. It's not yours. Same with the fireman. I really like this big truck. Man, I really like this truck. Yeah, I was wanting a truck. You can't have that truck. Do you understand? It's not yours. Now, if the mailman wants to keep his little mail truck, <laughs> just let him have it. You know, there's certain people you want to fight with and other people you don't. But you see what the problem is here? See, the thing is, you either own it or you don't own it, right? Either you own it or you don't. I mean, there's three very serious implications that arise out of this principle. The first principle is this. If God owns everything, He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, whatever is His. Amen? Eh, Half-hearted amen there. You're starting, it's starting to, see, it's starting to click. Already the Holy Spirit's saying, see, you got a problem, buddy, in this area. And here's how I know you have a problem. You know how I know you have a problem and how I know when I have a problem? Do you ever get upset when somebody else has more stuff than you? Some of you don't. 
Some of you do. Man, I, how can this guy have more stuff than me? He's not even half as bright as I am, nor half as good looking. I mean, I just don't understand it. Now, how can this person have more stuff than us? And I don't understand it. You know how he can have more stuff than you? Because he probably is in debt up to his ears, and we'll talk about that. But So don't get deceived by that. But there's also the reality that, you know what, he could have more stuff with you than you because God just gave him more stuff than you. God gave this one man five talents, he gave the other guy two talents. He gave the other guy one talent. God can do whatever he wants with whatever's his anytime he wants to do it. Remember the parable of the day laborers? Some people came out early in the morning, they agreed a price, they worked all day long. Some people came at the end of the day, three o'clock in the afternoon. Somebody came and the guy said, hey, I'm going to give you so much money. And he got the same amount as the one who worked all day. And you know what they said? That's not fair. That's what they said. Very theological, spiritual, deep answer. But that's not right. Well, why isn't it right? Well, because I worked all day and they only had to work a couple hours. They got the same pay that I did. And he said, didn't you agree to the pay? Yeah, well, what's the, what's the point? Well, the point is that it's mine and I can do whatever I want with it. Now, see, some of us say, well, that's just poor, that's bad business. You know, you don't want to hire somebody and start paying them as much as somebody else has been working there, you know, five years. Hey, you know what? You pay them anything you want to pay them. And the problem isn't whether it's bad management or business or not. The problem is that the other per- person is envious and they should take their eyes off of everybody else and just concentrate on themselves. Now, it may not be smart business, but you know what? The problem with these business principles is this. God does whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it. Now, I don't read anywhere in Harvard Business School where that was a really stupid idea on God's part. You know, he really shouldn't have paid that guy came in at the end of the day the same amount of money that people worked all day because it's going to just create a very dissatisfied workplace. Oh, grow up. I think we need to realize who's calling the shots here. God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. The second implication is this. Every spending decision that you and I make is a spiritual decision. Oh. Ooh, so now some of you are saying, well, I understand this whole thing about giving. Now, giving sounds like a spiritual thing to me. Now, you know, giving, you know, tithing, whatever, all that stuff is, we'll, we'll learn about that. But, but giving sounds like a spiritual thing. Hey, let me tell you something. Every spending decision that you make is a spiritual decision. Why? Because it's not your stuff. It's God's stuff. And every time you spend any money, I would think that you would consult God first to see if it's okay. I would hope that a real estate agent who would ever conduct any transaction for me and my wife would call us first and say, is this okay if I do this? All that I'm saying is that, you know what, it's no more spiritual to spend money in giving areas or vacation areas or to buy food or to buy clothes or to buy a car or buy a vehicle or buy whatever or buy a house. Every spending decision is a spiritual decision. Because it reflects whether or not you really believe that you are entrusted by God to manage his possessions or if you think they're your own. And what even further complicates is when you've got marital situations where a husband and wife think that the money that they make is their own money. And I'll spend it any way I want whether I talk to my spouse or not. You know what? That, just, that all filters from the fact that neither one of you understand that none of it's yours and it's all God's. It's all God's. The third, well, you know, and the third very serious implication from this is if God owns it all, you can't fake stewardship. You follow what I'm saying here? You can't fake stewardship. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about this. If you're a new Christian, you put your faith and trust in the Lord, you become a child of God, you can come to church, you can read your Bible, you can pray. You can do a whole bunch of things that make it look like 
you're moving forward in your relationship with God. But you can't fake anyone out when it comes to stewardship. And you know why I say that? Because if we looked at your checkbook and the register in your checkbook and we saw how you were spending money, God's money that he entrusted to you, it will tell volumes about where you are spiritually in your life. Because we already learned that attitude always precedes action. And if you believe that God owns it all, and you believe that you're entrusted with his possessions to do whatever it is that he wants you to do with it, then it's going to be reflected in how you write checks. Isn't it? Interesting. And I think that's the reason why so many people have a problem with finance series being taught in church. That's so personal. Is it any more personal than any other area of your life? Well, we don't talk about finances. You know what I always thought would be interesting? Did everyone bring their, in fact, why don't you do it next week? Everyone bring their checkbook registers with them. <laughs> Good. If everyone bring their checkbook registers and just pass it, not to the person to the left of you, because you may know them. Pass it to the person behind you. And allow them just to leaf through and see where you spend your money. Yeah, now next week you all be like, hey, sit behind me next week, just in case he brings it back up again. <laughs> but, but stop and think about that. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Here, here's our, here's our checkbook register. Here's our credit card bills. Here's, here's everything. L- look at it. Have at it. We've got nothing to hide in this area. Or let me ask you something. Or would you be ashamed? Or would that reflect that you don't really know what this whole attitude of stewardship is all about? It's interesting, isn't it? You can't fake stewardship. You can fake a whole bunch of other things in your spiritual life, but you can't fake that. Because where your heart is, that's where your treasure lies. And if you're into material things, it's going to show up by the way you spend your money. And if you're into the things of God, it's going to show up by the way you spend your money. And, uh, gee, you know what? We're out of time. I hate when I run out of time like this. But we'll look at the rest of this because there's three more principles that we'll talk about. But, you know, if, if we don't grasp anything else, I really think that just understand that God owns it all will free your life up. It really will. Because what it'll do is it'll do this. It'll, it'll, it'll cause you just to open your hands and say, Lord, whatever you want to put into it, put it in. Whatever you want to take out, you can take it out. And, and, and the bottom line is, is that it's yours and you can do whatever you want with it. And I'll tell you what, you know what's going to happen and you know why you'll be different than people around you? Because you'll have peace of mind. You'll be free from anxiety and worry about finances. You'll understand that God is in control. And you'll recognize and realize that, you know what? Hey, God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it. And that's good enough with me because if I'm going to trust him in the other areas of my life, and if I'm going to trust him for my eternity, I certainly should be able to trust him for finances and meeting our needs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity just to look at what your word has to say about finances. God, help us to understand this whole principle of stewardship. God, help us to realize that we are just merely your agents, that you entrust your possessions and your property to us. 
And as a result, we should continually be in consultation with you as to how you would like those resources to be managed. God, help us to realize that so many of the problems in our life and our spiritual area revolve around money and revolve around financial areas. God, help us to see that we're to be different in those areas, knowing that money is fleeting, possessions are temporary. Jesus warned us, why should we even worry about it, where thieves would break in and steal it, and rust and moths would come in to destroy it. But he told us that we should lay for ourselves treasures in heaven that neither thieves could steal nor rust or moth destroy. God, help us to see that our attitude always precedes our actions. Change our heart in this area of ownership and help us to understand and to see that, you know what, you really do own it all. And we just ask you to bless it and, pr and we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, you know what?